0: Right. If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn in First uh, John, chapter 2. First John, chapter 2. We're going to look today at Fellowship's Care. Um, and uh, uh, Let's go ahead and, and uh, read our, our text. We'll begin back there with Krista. If you'd read uh, in chapter 2 from verse 12, and we'll take turns reading until we get to... Uh, uh, verse 17. So Krista, the brother Tom, Sam, and then Jen and me. And let's read first. First of verse. Uh, chapter and verse. First John verse two, chapter two and beginning at verse number 12. Okay. Or, or then, first John. First John. Chapter two. Yep. Okay. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His are saved. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known Him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known Him as from the beginning I have written to you. You men because ye are strong, <clears throat> and the word of God abides in you, and ye have come to meet one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the less there. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. All right, well, I I want us to pause just for a moment and review a little bit what we've uh, learned from this epistle, 1 John, so far. And uh, John began by revealing that his overall purpose in writing the epistle to his audience, and do you (laughs) remember who was his audience? Who was his audience? Do you know? you remember like? say people in general but I'm, he was writing to a specific uh, a church most likely it's the church of Ephesus John became the pastor uh, you know sometime well, after Paul had started it for a while, Timothy was pastor of the church at Ephesus, and uh, then but eventually John became the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and uh, John was probably pastoring the church at Ephesus when he was arrested, and uh, by Diocletian and uh, put on the island of Patmos, uh, because of being a Christian leader, he was exiled to Patmos, and uh, then then but eventually he was allowed to leave probably after Diocletian died and then went to uh, back to Ephesus and so it's probably after you know he got off the Isle of Patmos that he wrote uh, uh, both Revelation and First John. He could have written them while he was on Patmos Uh, he certainly had his vision while he was on Patmos but when he wrote when he actually wrote it his, his not quite known uh, for sure uh, but probably the epistle of 1st John was written right at about the same time and uh, so it, he may have written it from Patmos we don't really know for sure but it was at least probably 90 AD 95 AD some people think as late as 98 AD so uh, John at that time was near a hundred years old so uh, and he wrote to them that uh, they would have uh, that his purpose in writing to them was that uh, they would have fellowship together, and we can see that in verse number 3 of chapter 1. Go back and look at that real quick. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So uh, for them to have genuine fellowship within the church, which of course the church how does the Bible call the 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 church in many places in the New Testament it calls it the body of Christ they needed to be in good fellowship with the Father and with his son Jesus Christ and no one is in good fellowship with God who's not walking in the light of Jesus Christ so to walk to walk in the light it means to, to not knowingly be committing sin so if somebody is doing something that they know is wrong and they're regularly doing it um, then they're not walking in the light and whether it's just take as an example a pretty common thing uh, these days is to live with somebody live a man and woman live together outside the bonds of marriage and and that's that's wrong there there's the bible is very clear about that to continue doing that after you're saved Knowing that it's wrong is to walk in darkness, or to not go to church after you get saved. Uh, To not go to church when you're a Christian is to walk in darkness. Hmm. And uh, so no one is in good fellowship with God who is not walking in the light of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we won't do wrong. It doesn't mean that, you know, somebody cuts us off and we might, you know, say something unkind. Or that we um, uh, might lose our, our temper or, or, you know, just the many ways that, that, that we sin. But when we do, we are, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin. We know that it's wrong and, and we pray and say, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that. And uh, so uh, walking in the light just simply means that a believer is not in sin. And it means that there is, there must not be any known unrepented of sin in our life. In other words, yes, I know it's a sin, but I'm going to do it anyways. And I'm going to keep on doing it. So, to willfully continue in sin proves that we do not love God. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my words. And I think it's in John, John 15 or John 16. Uh, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands. And uh, the greatest commandment is what? Is to love God. To love God with all our heart and soul and mind. And the second greatest, the one just after that, is to love our neighbor. Our neighbor. Now, uh, those who do not love their brother, whom they can see, should not. Be telling everyone how much that they love God because they're liars if if you if you can't love your brother whom you can see how how is anyone to believe that you love God whom you cannot see so they're still in darkness and they're not in the light all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments that we love God and that we love people that we love others So, um, this is not a demand for sinless perfection, because God knows that, that we're still weak. God knows that we, you know, are prone to sin, but it is a demand that our claimed faith in Christ be proven by our preference for light over darkness, so... Now it might be that some feel the the commands to walk in the light by not sinning against Christ in his word and by loving our brethren could seem too high a standard. And, uh, you know, how how can I do that? Uh, But, I don't know, what do you think about that? Do you think it's maybe too high of a standard? (laughs) That God's asking too much of us? It is... I think that that's not too much for us. If, if we've received the grace of God, I think that enables us to, to love, uh, even if in the past we were maybe a loner or we didn't like other people. Or it, it... And you're sitting there staring at me like... But, but aren't we, didn't we become a new creature when we got saved? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Old things are passed away, all things are become new. So, you, you know that when, in, in, uh, when we get to is it verse 16 in this chapter, that, that uh, verse 15, John was going to raise the standard even higher. He was going to go beyond, okay, you have to love God, And you have to love your brothers but here's something else you must not love the world that's that's raising the bar even higher so verses 12 through 14 they seem at least to me to be a parenthesis designed to offer encouragement and comfort and uh, so uh, I, I don't think it's too much for God to expect us to love Christ by keeping his commandments and to love our brethren. And if it seems too much for God to ask of us, then the command that we not love the world is certainly going to seem an even greater burden. Now, it, it, I guess it maybe seems that John may have anticipated uh, his audience blanching at the truth that was about to be presented, you know, love not the world. But really, uh, I want to point out that it's, it's not John. You know, we say John thought this and John wrote this, and, but really it's the Holy Spirit of God, right? Uh, I, I know that in, in talking about verbal plenary inspiration, that, that people make far more of the human instrument then I think is wise. I think it's better for us to focus on the Holy Spirit's role in inspiration rather than upon the, the man. Uh, because it, when we do that, then, then it becomes what it is, the Word of God, uh, and not just the words of John. And part of the reason why there's this Bible debate and, and why men feel free to just to cut parts out of the Bible that they don't like or to say or to change to change it you know I'm, I'm always uh, bothered I guess when I when I listen to a sermon and I hear a preacher say and oh by the way such and such translation reads it this way and it's you know when I went to uh, grad school uh, in a fundamental Baptist institution but not one that believed strongly in the preservation of Scripture uh, we were required uh, when we took our class on advanced homiletics, advanced preaching, we had to read our text. We had to read our text in seven different versions. We could pick any of the versions we wanted, and and so that's how many pastors and preachers are cha- trained. They're trained that you should take your text and then you should read it in seven. Why should you read it in seven different versions? Do you know why they want you to read it in seven different versions? Because you're going to get seven different texts. And then you pick the one which is close to, close to the truth that you're trying to present. Well, is that is that what God wants us to do? I can't imagine that's what God wants us to do. Because as far as I know, uh, things that are different cannot be the same. So, seven different Bible versions that read a verse differently. Are they all saying the same thing? No. And when a preacher gets up and he picks one out, it's because it has an emphasis that the other ones don't have, and that's what's captured his opinion or his attention. So that's what he's doing. Well, I I, I think it's not good to to uh, focus too much on the human instruments that God used to give us to give us. Uh, a scripture, and, and so if you hear me say that John anticipated the, them being shocked at the truth that was being presented, please understand that I really mean the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, because John doesn't know what people are going, John, John doesn't know, I don't know what people think. Well, what I can do is I, I can anticipate what people are probably going to do because I've been a pastor since August of 1990 and I've, I've watched people, I've kind of had a front row seat in people's lives for 35 years now. And, and people tend to do the same things. They make the same mistakes. And uh, uh, so John... The Holy Spirit really uh, he was maybe giving these verses 12 13 and 14 to kind of temper the message that was about to be presented so it wouldn't be so shocking to them and uh, I don't think though that as as I have several commentaries that do think the, the commentaries think that that John was rebuking his audience here, that John was unhappy with their condition. I don't know that John was unhappy with their condition. I, I think maybe their condition could have been pretty good. And if we know from, from uh, Revelation chapter 2 that, that the Lord Jesus praised the Ephesian church for their doctrine, didn't he? He said, I know... I know that you have tried them that are in error and found them to be liars. Uh, They were were zealous about their doctrine. They knew their doctrine. Um, But it isn't really doctrine so much that's being presented here in 1 John. It's really more about their heart. Their heart so I don't think though that John thought their spiritual condition was worthy of reproach and our text doesn't indicate that what it does appear though is that they were at least listening to false teachers and those teachers were evidently advocating a less than holy manner of living they were offering justification for continuing to walk in darkness, and that's what the Gnostics were doing. By the way, that's what the the Judaizers that Paul contended with, which didn't seem to have been a problem after 70 A.D. After 70 A.D., when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and they 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 killed uh, a million Jews and they they sold another one and a half million Jews as slaves. Uh, after that, there wasn't really much problem with. Judaizers in the churches anymore then the problem became Gnosticism which Gnosticism of course was this belief that uh, they they taught uh, among other things that Jesus was not uh, real that either Jesus was not the Christ because anything that's material anything that you can touch anything that you can you know uh, uh, behold with your eyes and touch with your hands that that's intrinsically evil and so uh, they said that either Jesus uh, you know God uh, Christ came on Jesus Jesus was just a man but Christ was a spirit that came on Jesus at his at his uh, baptism when John baptized him and departed from him just before his crucifixion or Jesus was just a phantasm that that appeared that people could see him, but he wasn't—he wasn't material, and that's what Gnosticism was was teaching those things. So, and also they were teaching basically that if you were a Christian, then then uh, sin only only you know where grace did abound, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound, and so they used some of Paul's teaching, they they twisted it and used it to say we. You know, our sin makes grace to abound. So let's, let's keep doing that which makes grace abound. And so those were the uh, things that the Gnostics were, were teaching. And the people that John was writing to, uh, that I don't think they had embraced Gnosticism, but they weren't condemning it either. They weren't shutting these people out of their church. And why do you think they weren't doing that? Why why do you think they weren't, you know, telling them, out of our church, you have no business here, that's that's blasphemy, that's heresy, get out of our church. Why do you think they weren't doing that? Made them look good? Made them look good? Well, uh, no, not at that point, I don't think so. I don't think false teachers made the believers in the church at Ephesus look good. I think it was the exact op- opposite. I think the ones who were presenting the truth looked very good. I think that these people looked perfect. I think that these people were wealthy because nobody ever likes running a wealthy person out of their church, do they? hmm somebody who's really wealthy that's why so many cults are started by people who have a lot of money or people who are strongly supported by somebody who has a lot of money and so uh, that's just a guess. I don't really know for sure but it does seem to be how Satan works now in our passage pastor, yes I have a question so how about the pastor Cho? Mm. Uh, so he did a lot of you know speaking tongues and heal hear people in trouble so is he a kind of one of the false teachers or not? A oh, teacher? I would, I would call him a false teacher. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've read his salvation testimony in his biography, and you know he said he got saved by listening to the Beatles. Listening to the Beatles? Yeah, he said he was sick, and he was listening to the Beatles, and mm-hmm. after listening to the Beatles, he felt really good, and he knew that God had healed him. Mm-hmm. That that's that's. That's what he wrote in his autobiography. So you know he doesn't say anything in his autobiography about you know repenting of his sin. You know, Mm. for him it was all about experiences. You know, I had this this spiritual experience. You know, and Mm -hmm. speaking in tongues and seeing visions and things like that. Yeah, right. And you know, and but you know, I mean, he said on live television one time that that. Buddha, just like Jesus, is a pathway to heaven. That, how can that not be anything other than the words of a false preacher? So, um, yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think. Thank you. So. Now, our passage reminds uh, the believers of the truth that had saved them. They were saved by God's grace through faith. Uh, they weren't saved by anything they did, they weren't saved because they they had a vision or they spoke in tongues or or they got healed or or uh, you know uh, they did all of these great works uh, John begins uh, then by addressing them with a term of endearment he calls them little children and uh, uh, later he writes to fathers and then to young men <coughs> And it seems to me uh, that that it's unlikely he was addressing different age groups in other words he was addressing first the children and then then the fathers by fathers I think we can understand grandfathers you know those of us who have gray hair and, and and then young men those who are in the prime of life if anything I think he was addressing the different levels of spiritual maturity probably though the whole church was meant when when he labeled them little children and even jesus in in john i think it's john 15 he he called the the apostles little children and so john at that point was very old he could have been close to 100 years old he certainly was over 90 and he had every right to to view them as such as little children and like him they had experienced the forgiveness of their sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they knew the Father through their relationship with his son. With His Son, So uh, he wrote unto them, uh, or unto the spiritually mature fathers among them, because they had come to know him that was for, from eternity past. That's what uh, both times when it mentions fathers, it, it speaks about him that was from eternity the beginning so language use emphasizes their personal experience in knowing Christ not just their knowledge of him it wasn't that they were well educated it wasn't that they had attended catechism classes or or that they were faithful to Sunday school uh, but it was that they knew they knew him Head knowledge is not the same as personal experience so now I would uh, never agree to try and reduce the the Christian faith down to its smallest possible explanation a lot of people do that let's what is what is it that we you know uh, ecumenicism tries to reduce you know all the different branches of Christianity to to something that everybody can agree with Um, when you do that, you have to ignore a whole bunch of the Bible. Mm -hmm. But if a task like that were to be attempted, then these three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14, would certainly be a a good place to begin. Well, let's look at them again. I write it to you, little children, because what? Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So it begins with the necessity of our sins being forgiven for his name's sake. And let me tell you that there are evangelical Christians that would say, no, we can't begin there. It's all about God. It can't be about us in any way. And uh, I listened to a sermon just recently, and that's the whole point of the guy's sermon was, you know, the problem with Christianity is that we make it all about us well I understand what he was saying that 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 sometimes we're narcissistic we we tend to make everything centered around us but the gospel message the gospel message is our sins being forgiven for his name's sake that's the gospel message that's what John says so we are the children of God through his grace received by faith in his son and that is what forgives our sins that's what cleanses us from all unrighteousness now i think we should be careful not to suppose that someone is a christian just because they prayed the sinner's prayer because most people who prayed the sinner's prayer they're just repeating what somebody said here now you just say after me Well, plenty of insincere prayers are read or repeated or memorized. And they're not coming from faith. They're not coming from belief. Those who are saved believe with the heart and they call upon Christ for their salvation. And they're not saved, those that try to tell God all that they have done for him. That's what John, uh, Matthew seven seven. Is. <coughs> Lord, we cast out devils. Say, Lord, in your name, we did wonderful, mighty works in your name, Lord. And He's going to say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. So the Christian experience begins with personal faith in what Christ has done. In the moment we believed, our sins were forgiven for His name's sake, not for our sake. Not for our sake. I am certainly glad that my sins have been forgiven and I'm no longer at enmity with God. But ultimately, the forgiveness of my sins is for His name's sake, and for His glory, and for His honor. Now, don't don't think that I'm suggesting that God is in some way in need of my praise, or whatever glory might be derived from my repentance and salvation. I don't think that there's a whole lot God got from my being saved. But if there is any glory produced through my conversion, it all belongs to the Son of God. None of it's to me. If it's it's to me or about me, then, then, then it probably wasn't real to begin with. Now the we know that Jesus is God, a very God. And that's what the Gnostics denied. He's the eternal creator. They they deny that. And he's overcome the wicked one. That's, that's what our text verse says back in verse 12. Uh, uh, I've written unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Verse 13, I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him, that is from the beginning. God a very God eternal creator I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one and I write unto you little children because ye have known the father so it is uh it is we are strong Is only through his spirit working in us. That's what verse 14 teaches. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God, that's the Logos, abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. And so, Um, even though they were lending their ear to false teachers, teachers whom John is going to later call antichrists, they were strong and had overcome the wicked one. Now these verses are not in any way lending support to the idea of the false doctrine that salvation can be lost or sinned away. Uh, I I hope you've never heard anyone teach that. Uh, Personally, I never have. I know people who believe it. I know people in good churches who believe it. And uh, most of the time they believe it because they've read a book that teaches it, or maybe they listen to a sermon from somebody that is... uh, There's not a lot of denominations, I think, that that teach it. The Church of Christ teaches you can lose your salvation. Some in the Nazarene churches believe that. And uh, there's some uh, Baptists called Free Will Baptists that also teach that, uh, now the Free Will Baptists are a little bit different because the Free Will Baptists don't believe that they can lose their salvation. They only believe that people not in the Free Will Baptist churches can lose their salvation. But if you're in the Free Will Baptist church, they believe in their eternal security, they don't just don't, they don't believe in yours. (laughs) So so it's, they're, they're kind of funny that way and uh, usually those free will baptist boys they have really high standards I mean, I mean they, they look really good because well if you think you might lose your salvation you're going to do everything right it, you know so uh, but we don't always feel very strong spiritually at least I don't do, do you always feel strong spiritually? <laughs> no uh, some, some days it, it hardly seems at all that that we've overcome the wicked one. Some days it seems like uh, Satan has just given me a beat down, you know. Uh, but if we've overcome him, and that's what the text says, right? Why does it seem that, that often we're right in the middle of such painful spiritual conflict? I... I I think we only feel that way when we're not in in good fellowship. That's what I think. I think it all goes back to what was presented in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 4. These things write we unto you. Why? That your joy may be full well what what makes our joy full you have to go back to verse number three to find out what makes our joy full verse number three says that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that she also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ so here's the problem no one feels joy when they're defeated and miserable right do you do you want joy and strength and victory over the world the flesh and the devil the key is fellowship the key if we have fellowship good sweet fellowship with the body of Christ we're going to have good fellowship with God there just are no joyful believers who are out